Hello and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech. Connect Health Tech is Cambridge University's Enterprise Zone, the gateway into the university's life sciences and health tech community for collaborators, companies and investors. We work to join the dots between medicine and technology across the Cambridge ecosystem and beyond by strengthening interdisciplinary bridges between academia, industry and healthcare, we facilitate real-world possibilities, transforming innovative ideas into tangible outcomes that benefit society. In our podcast series, Joining the Dots, we explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations, finding the right partner, and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech, and in this special two-guest episode of Joining the Dots, we explore the theme of taking research from idea to proof of concept and beyond. Joining me today is Jason Mellard, co-founder and CEO of Start Codon, a life science venture capital fund and venture builder, and Jerome Verheer, co-founder and CEO of Sumerian a biotech startup that leverages microfabrication technology to build smart materials and develop novel cell assaying applications. Sumerian were also part of the very first cohort of companies to take part in Start Codon's inaugural accelerator program in 2020. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. So funding for early stage companies in the UK, what areas do you currently see are the biggest challenges now and going forward and how can things be improved so this is an excellent question paula because i will tell you when we started um start code on many years ago it's almost four years now actually it's four years now wow the time flies when we first started this journey we had a hypothesis very much based upon the state of play at the time and where we thought the field was heading and we said there are a lot of accelerator programs where there's none that really gives you a significant check size and the hands-on support, et cetera, that we wanted to give. And so we created that. We've grown and we've evolved ourselves. We've learned a lot about our model, what works, what doesn't. And so we've evolved, but we have really proven that there was that gap. Now, what we didn't quite fully appreciate was that there was another gap right after ours. So we're getting, a, we're building a bridge across what we call the valley of death. Everybody talks about this and you're like, oh, I've got an idea. Then there's a big dip and oh my way, guys, what am I gonna do? Yeah. Money. And what typically happens, early stage um, ideas and the founders say, okay, I need money to do X, Y, and Z. And the investors go, great, you do X, Y, and Z, then I'll give you money. You just kind of end up staring at each other. It's like, but I need the money to do the work. And the investor goes, but I'm not going to give you the money until I see the results of the work. So who's going to bridge that gap? Sarcodon is part of the solution, but we aren't the full solution today. So one of the things we're interested in is raising more capital in our next fund so that we can help bridge that gap fully, writing larger checks, following investments, et cetera, as well as bringing in more syndication partners and more in the ecosystem to help get companies across that valley. Because there are many players in this space. In the Cambridge ecosystem alone, you've got Martlet Capital, you've got Cambridge Enterprise Seed Funds, and Starcodon, the Illumina Accelerator, O2H Ventures, all of these players, we're all trying to work together to solve the same issue, that there's a big gap between early stage companies and research and what a, say, a Series A investor wants to see. And incidentally, on the positive side, we are seeing less risk aversion and larger check sizes for early stage investments, very akin to what we see in the States for like Series A investors who would say, okay, well, I'm dropping several million at the seed stage and Series A stage. But the expectations increase as well. 
So yeah. as much as we say, oh, okay, great, we're seeing larger raises in the UK, and isn't that wonderful, and Europe is really catching up to the States, the expectation of those investors is getting higher and higher. So that means that gap is widening. So how do you go across that gap? That's what we're interested in actually bridging. So anybody who's listening, I think you've really got to plan out your journey. It's not just, what am I doing right now? I always say, once you've raised capital, you need to immediately be thinking, if you haven't already, about the next fundraise and planning for it and actively pursuing it. So it's not a matter of, I've raised enough money for 18 months worth of work, and then at the end of like a year, I'm going to go out and pitch and raise. No, from the moment you've got your pre-seed, you've got to be planning the seed round. The moment you've got your seed, you need to be engaging with Series A investors and saying, what is it you'd like me to see? Ideally, you engage with them early enough that they inform your seed round. Because the way that this should work is, I'm thinking that in three years' time, I'm going to raise you know, 15 million pounds or 30 million pounds, whatever it may be. I'm going to talk to those investors today. And they'll give me a good idea, as long as all the partners and mentors I'm speaking to, what they'd expect to see in terms of team and milestones and capabilities, partnerships I've secured, uh, revenue I might have generated, whatever it may be. And then I'll say, okay, I'll incorporate that into my plans. I'll go to my seed investor and say, guess what? I've had a conversation with these guys. If you give me seed funds now, I will do dink, 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 and dink. And then I'll be able to go to the Series A investor and say, look what I've accomplished. Give me money and so on and so forth. So no conversation is wasted. Build up those relationships and those insights early on and engage often. That is really great. And you, you've just answered my, my next question to you um, on that. So I'll turn to Jerome now um, because it's still in the same realm where, you know, Sumerian have just closed a 2.14 million seed funding round. Congratulations. Thank you. What was the process? to develop that fund rate, if you could just in brief tell us, uh, and who was involved and how long did it take, alluding to what Jason's just said here? <laughs> I mean, I'll first come out and say that a lot of the things that Jason just said were quite applicable to us as well. Of mm -hmm. course, we had great mentorship from this organization called Start Gordon, so no surprise there, I guess. Um, but just to give some anecdotal evidence to what Jason was just highlighting, we went to some Series A investors who essentially told us like, look, this is somewhat too early for us. But indeed, if you can do X, Y, and Z, we would be interested. And then later we had a conversation with seed stage investors and we explained what our milestones were gonna be. And then they said like, well, how do you think this will convince your next investors um, to invest in you? And then we said like, well, we actually went to speak to them and they gave us those milestones. And then, I mean, we were in a good position to convince the seed, seed investors to, to invest in us. So it is really important, again, to keep connecting the dots and keep speaking to mm. people um, and thinking about these things. I think what was instrumental for us is to um, come up with the simplest product that we could develop first. I think initially, Tarun and I, we had sort of grand visions of very complicated, groundbreaking sort of products that we could build. And we talked to pharma clients as well, and they were interested in it. It would just take us three, four years to develop that. And of course, if you're stuck to funding cycles, you don't really have that time. So what was really helpful for us was like focusing on a very simple product for which there was still a big need in the market, developing that, doing sort of uh, product trials with pharma companies or other collaborators, and then going to the investor and saying like, look, we have a great platform. We've developed our first product. We've tested it in the market. We have great feedback. Um, if you want to talk to anybody who has tried the product, go and you can give them a call. And that was really instrumental for us as well. Um, and I think in terms of how we approached this, we, we opened our seed round uh, last year around the June time. I think just before opening the seed round, 
we of course developed a, 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 an investor deck and we went to to speak and pitch to some of the more quote unquote friendly investors that we already had some relations with and sort of like pressure test, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, or pitch and our story because they're ha- they're happy to give you some informal advice. And then we updated everything a bit around that, created a data room, which is essentially um, a Dropbox folder, if you will, where you accumulate all the documentation around your company. And that actually helped us in the end because lots of these seed stage investors told us like, look, the documents that we're seeing here, we would expect around a series A, sometimes even just a series B investment round. So then they can see that you're taking it serious. Again, to what Jason said earlier, they want to know that you know what you're talking about. So by oversharing that, you sort of like highlight that to them um, to some extent. So that was in June, opened up um, the investment round. And I think we were quite fortunate in that we found our lead investor very quickly. That was Parkwalk. Um, and Parkwalk, they also work quite closely with Cambridge Enterprise. So they're, they're known in the Cambridge ecosystem as well. Uh, incredible investors, I have to say, very approachable and, and, and give good advice as well. And then after that, we tried to sort of like search for the other investors. Uh, and then Cambridge Enterprise came on board. Martlet Capital came on board. We find a couple of uh, angels as well. And then, of course, different investors have different little desires. So you might have to change the round as you're sort of fundraising. And I think around August, September, we we got all our investors. We got them to agree on the amount of money they wanted to put in. But then it still took us from September to December to sort of agree on the exact terms. So that legal documentation, the investment papers and all that stuff as well, working with the lawyers, working with all these investors. And then it was actually quite funny. I went back to Belgium to, to celebrate Christmas. And uh, on Christmas Eve, I sent the last email with the investors at 6 p.m. while sitting at the at the dinner table with my family. And it was just a last signature that came in just before the, the holiday season. So it was sort of a very happy moment, I think. Jason, this was a, a very successful um, deal that's been that's been closed here, and you, you must be extremely proud as well. Um, Samarian being one of the first in your in your cohort. But what alternatives can early stage companies take when the deal doesn't work out? What practical steps could you know can you give? Because they're not always going to work out in the way you think they will, and they don't always close. No. Um, well, yes, I'm very, very proud. I mean, we we always knew that these guys, Yorana and Turin, were going to be stars. And so we're so excited to see what Samarian does next. When it doesn't work out, I would say it depends on why it doesn't work out. Sometimes it doesn't work for a reason and you should let it go. Maybe the idea didn't work, the technology wasn't right, the field uh, narrowed, the market wasn't what you thought it would be, whatever it may be. Maybe the, the founders fell out, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's just better to end it early. Like when they say fail fast, it's the same thing goes for the business. Now, other times, there's a reason that can be addressed. And it's better to kind of go out and start having those conversations early so you can anticipate. Very much in the vein of what we've just been saying, if you have those discussions early on, you might see some red flags in advance that you can address soon. So if there's a lack of confidence in the leadership, you can bring in you know, a chair or somebody who has more experience because they might say the team is too young and inexperienced. If the technology is too early, then maybe one, don't spin it out in the first place, or you can find a way to collaborate with academia to make sure that you have extra R&D funds available you can tap into or secure grant funding or Innovate UK funding. So there's usually some very clear reasons why something doesn't work out, and it's better to highlight and address those early on than waiting. And I would just say that not every company is meant to succeed. 
usually, particularly if you're investing in platforms, if the IP is quite valuable, there might be directions you can pivot in. Maybe there's an early acquisition, maybe you can merge with another company, maybe you can spin back into a university. It's not always a catastrophic failure, but sometimes some things don't work out for a reason. And as long as everybody's learned from it, both the founders and the investors can learn, then it was actually you know, constructive. The challenge is, is if you are a serial failure, <laughs> that's, that's when you gotta rethink, like you know, there's a common denominator in that. If someone's constantly failing, failing, failing at everything they do, the common denominator is probably that person. And so they have to really, really long, hard look at themselves and say, huh, what is wrong with this picture? And that can be a challenge. I, from my own experience, sometimes telling people this isn't quite for you can be a, a difficult conversation, <laughs> but it necessary. Is, it's, well, you know, Paul, it's one that we have often, you, you would be surprised how many times we have to just tell people, actually, in our opinion, and, you know, you should never take someone else's opinion as gospel truth, but in our opinion, this is not the right play. You're maybe not the right person to do this role. You're not the right person to be in that role. You're not, it doesn't make sense for you to set up a company. Maybe it's not the right motivations. Sometimes people do things for the wrong reasons yeah. and they don't really understand why, for example, they're setting up a company. They think, well, the you know PI down the hall, they've got a company, so I want a company. I need it for the ref. And you think, that's not really a reason. Do you have any idea how much pain you're in for for the startup? It won't, you won't sustain <laughs> yourself if you're just doing it just because the person down the hall is doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll touch upon this a little bit later about when it's not quite right for you in being that that co-founder. So tell me about a time when a specific connection or relationship led to a successful outcome in your career. Got you. Um, pretty much every step of my career has been through connections. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I ended up getting my scholarship to come to the UK to study. And then when I was finishing up and starting a postdoc, I did an internship um, in the tech transfer office at King's College London. And when I ended up moving to the, well, back to Cambridge, I applied for a job at Cambridge Enterprise. And there was a connection there because I said, oh, you've worked in tech transfer. We know the people that you've worked with. You understand who we are. They gave a great reference. Then when I was at Cambridge Enterprise, a former colleague of mine there went to Horizon Discovery and said, there's a great opportunity for you to learn from biotech. And so she contacted me and I got a job there. Then my previous boss, Ian Thomas at Cambridge Enterprise, told me about a new startup, um, you know, Cambridge Epigenetics that was starting. It was a great opportunity. Introduced me to the team. I got a position there. So on and so forth. And then people I met in the ecosystem said, we are thinking about setting up a new venture builder accelerator. We need somebody to lead it. We think you'd be perfect. Would you be interested? And those are through connections. So in all those instances, I've really leveraged my network of people who are, you know, near and dear to me professionally and sometimes personally as well to highlight opportunities, to vet opportunities and to help them really help me thrive in whatever role that I've chosen. And the only thing that I've ever been asked to do is to pay it forward to the next person, which is why I feel that particularly at Start Codon, it is largely about making connections, having the ability to see those challenges and understand those gaps and then say, right, I know individuals and organizations that can help you quickly fill those gaps and do so effectively. That's what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I love it. Great. Jerome, just just moving on to you regarding this, um, what advice would you give to an early career researcher listening now about building their own networks, their own connections? Are there any key people to engage 
So in terms of how to approach that networking side of things and that, um, yeah, sort of that building your, um, the people around you, I think you want to keep speaking to as many people as possible as often as you can. I think I can give you a couple of examples. For example, I, I had a great relationship with my um, uh, professor of physics when I was studying uh, life sciences um, years ago, and there was nothing I could get out of that. But then two years later, I was planning to um, study nanotechnology engineering, for example, and they didn't want to let me into the degree because I didn't have enough physics and maths and chemistry and these kind of things as well. And then I went back to my physics professor who I knew personally, and I said, like, could you potentially vouch for me here? And he called up the administrators and he says, like, oh, I've, I've worked with this guy. He's actually better at physics than your typical biologist is. So maybe you should consider his application. And that happened and that led to me doing this nanotechnology course as well. And then without that course, I would have probably not ended up in Cambridge because my PhD project was very much focused around sort of drug delivery systems and using nanotechnology as well. And then I would have had not met my, my co-founder and sort of developed Samarian uh, as a technology. And I think some other great examples are we were working with a physics professor who also uh, is an advisor for us at the company, uh, Russell Coburn. He introduced us to a CRUK professor called Sarah Bundik, who introduced us to another CRUK professor called Grant Stewart. And with him, we set up some early partnerships and collaborations, and we actually are still working with them. And that's also been instrumental to the development of our platform technology. Um, and you never know where these connections might lead to. So even if you are having a discussion with somebody and, and, and you don't know why you're having this discussion, that's not a reason to not speak to the person, I would say. Jason, uh, looking at skills um, and, and going forward, skills and knowledge, what skills do you think the UK will need to under, underpin the development of those transformative therapies of the future? I'm going to answer with a skill that I think that many people, use a skill set that many people ignore because we're so focused on technical skill sets. They'll say we'll need people who have raise multiple rounds of financing, serially successful entrepreneurs, uh, a clear path to development and market, um, a smooth uh, regulatory process. These are all things that are, okay, fine, they're very technical. I think we need more power skills, now, not soft skills, because my life coach friends have told me they're not soft anymore. There's okay. a good reason why. And the reason is because they're actually the most valuable. They're really tied up in the cultural attitudes and mores of different cultures and different um, individuals. And I think the ability to communicate um, the idea of really embracing risk, of having an entrepreneurial spirit, of having a growth mindset, of seeing things as opportunities and being ambitious. Those are really what I think are going to make the material difference because historically, we've had so much amazing deep tech coming from the UK, full stop. Not just from Cambridge and Oxford and some of the Russell Group universities, but across the board, it's been the home of innovation. But when it comes to commercializing and fully exploiting that innovation, the UK just doesn't quite reach its full potential time and time again. And then you see large US corporates swoop in and they buy up these plucky startups and say, ha look at us. And then Americans claim, oh, we're the home of innovation, when in reality, they've been buying a lot of UK innovations and companies on the cheap. Mm -hmm. And so if the UK is really going to be bringing in and ushering in a world of translational disruptive innovation. The promise is there, the base is there, but you have to have the ambition and the skills and the desire to really pull it off. And a lot of that comes down to how you communicate with each other, really understanding what it takes to build and grow, 
um, understanding that it can't all be about, let me go for the easiest thing and the least risky and really thinking big. And importantly, growing and scaling right here on home territory, as opposed to thinking how quickly can I sell and flip my company for an exit because I'm so risk averse, it might fail if I get too large. So that is essential in addition to the infrastructure, like the buildings and the capital that needs to be invested in companies and the, you know, this, that, and the other. Okay, yeah, that's all that's all true. We need UKRI to be funding lots of great research. We need the buildings that the companies can grow and scale in, and we need employees. That's wonderful. But I can tell you this, when I've been into some of the most successful companies, especially when I visit the West Coast and East Coast in the States, the thing that grabs me is that absolutely every person who's employed by those companies is clued in and passionate about what they do. I remember visiting a, one of the leading liquid biopsy early detection cancer, um, cancer early detection companies uh, several years ago, a Garden Health. And it was so impressed when I went in and the receptionist was asking me questions about my business. Not just, oh, what's your name? I'll sit you down. Literally, oh, what's your business model? That's interesting. That's a really interesting go-to market strategy. Have you heard about these three companies down the way? You should get in touch with them. Oh, I'm really keen about epigenetics. Tell me about that. Oh, great. I know about genomics. And I was thinking, you're the receptionist. (laughs) And I'm having a more engaging conversation with you than I've had with most investors in the UK. Something is wrong. And I asked her that specifically. She said, oh, because I really want to be engaged with what we do. I believe in our mission and I really want to um, see us succeed. And so I feel that it's my duty to understand everything about the business, not just what I do sitting here, um, you know, scheduling meetings and letting people in. That kind of attitude Mm. permeated throughout the entirety of the organization. And we need more of that here. Um, Jerome, you're currently recruiting to build your team. Um, You touched upon it earlier. How is it going? What is the recruitment landscape looking like for those power skills or technical skills you're looking for? Yeah, it's actually been quite an interesting couple of weeks. I think most of my work at the moment is around the recruiting, which is a bit of a shift of what we are doing normally in a day-to-day situation. But I have to say it is a bit of a minefield out there. Um, I think certainly in the Cambridge area, uh, recruiting is incredibly competitive. I think um, it's more employees who are recruiting companies rather than companies recruiting employees. So I think we are pitching ourselves to potential employees as much as they're pitching what they can do to us. And again, this comes down to a couple of the things that we were talking about earlier, that personal connection, that personal relationship. And also, I think what is incredibly important for us is to highlight what our company culture is, what we're going to expect from these individuals and how we see them sort of become part of the team and grow it in the team as well. So, of course, we don't want to hire people just for the sake of hiring people. Uh, We would rather hire nobody than hire a a bad individual, not per se a bad individual, but somebody who doesn't fit with the company culture or something like that as well. We are in a fortunate position that we are an early stage company, which is doing something slightly different. And I think that does appeal to people out there. Uh, Of course, there's a lot of job opportunities in in the big pharma companies. There's many of them in and around Cambridge. And a lot of people go for that sort of like more safe um, sort of um, sort of career path. But I think a lot of people nowadays, they want to be fulfilled in what they do and they want to be part of something uh, which is slightly bigger. Also use a variety of their skills, not just by patting in the lab, but maybe also discussing about the strategy uh, and other things as well. So. What we are trying to do in terms of appealing to people is sort of like showing them what that culture is like and how they can, um, yeah, 
grow and work with us to some extent. And I have to say the the PR around um, sort of our fundraising round and and, and et cetera, et cetera, quite useful into going into the (laughs) recruitment side. So a bit of media buzz first is quite useful uh, to feed in sort of candidates because you can have a great offer to potential candidates, but you can only offer that once they approach you and say like, oh, can we have a chat? So you first want to create a funnel for people to, to approach you, if you will. Brilliant. That's good news. Jason, as a leader of a progressive company like Start Code On, what is your approach to spotting and developing top talent? Well, I think because we're a startup helping startups, we have probably a level of empathy and sympathy for the founders that we're dealing with. It's not, oh, I remember many years ago when I was going through the same struggles. I'm like, I'm going through the same struggles right now. So that authenticity and that ability to relate helps us not only identify the potential and know that we can help them reach their potential rather than expecting them to be perfect, but also I think it gives comfort to the founders that we're speaking to that we are a really solid outfit and would be fun to work with because it does go both ways. Just like everyone was saying about having to convince the employees, not just the other way around, we do the same. I like to think of us as the underdogs, and I will always have that mentality because I think it'll keep us humble and it'll make sure that we're hungry for every deal that we do, that we always feel that we have to be proving ourselves. Because as soon as we become complacent and think that people automatically will just fall over themselves to get to us, we've lost. So whenever we're dealing with somebody, we look at them as human beings, we try to communicate as adults to one another, and rather than judging them, we think, I see potential. Now, How far are we from your true potential and helping you reach it from where you are today? And that's a huge part of what we judge. Also, the gap analysis. I'm not expecting a founder to have everything solved. A lot of investors that um, I think, and this is just the nature of the beast, they see these founders and they think, oh, you're not perfect. Come back to me when you've got all these answers. They see imperfections. They have a lot of the fixed mindsets. We have a growth mindset by definition. We see potential. We see opportunity. We see the challenges and how we can mitigate those challenges. So when somebody's approaching me, that's what I'm interested in. But most importantly, that person has to be self-aware and be around for that journey. That's key. They have to be able to say, you know, I'm really good at this and I know and I can prove it. But these are the things that I'm not so good at. And you know what? I respect you and I want your help. And we go, right, that's the right attitude. Let's work together to make this happen. Deep technical expertise, um, expertise in the commercial space. Those are things that are real bonus to me because... We've had some cases where people don't have one or the other. If you have both, great. But sometimes it's just that raw talent and potential. And we think, all right, we can help build a company that you would thrive in and help be successful. And then the next set of investors have a different way of looking at things, a different criteria, but we know how they think. So it's just bridging that gap between what you're going to have to achieve and how you have to appear and building up that front end of substance so you can secure that follow-up financing. But I, I'm really um, enthusiastic about science. So obviously I'm looking for that scientific curiosity. But again, it doesn't have to be deep technical expertise per se. You just have to be curious, hungry, and know how to hustle. Most important. You've got to be, I've seen people where I'm thinking, you know, maybe you don't have even a science degree full stop, but you're passionate about this topic. And you've really gone out there and hustled. And you will stop at nothing because you're relentless to make sure that you provide a solution that's going to save lives and build an amazing company. I'll invest in you. Tell me what you want to do with the money. I'll give you the money. What opportunities do you think exist for someone where they could use their skills to benefit a startup company, 
but they don't want to be a co-founder. What would what what opportunities could they could they have? There's multiple layers. So I will start at the top. Imagine you are helping us due diligence into companies that we want to invest in. We take on volunteer interns all the time who just want to learn what it means to invest and to build companies. They work with us. They get that experience in their CV. Several of them have gone on to other VC jobs or joining startups themselves. So even if they don't want to be a co-founder, maybe they want to be in the realm of assessing those opportunities and helping them get investment. And then you go, you could be a chair, depending on your experience, chair of the board, advising and mentoring the CEOs and the the other C-suite. You could be a NED, a non-exec director on the board. You could be a member of the, um, say, exec team. Even if you're not a co-founder, maybe you're a senior exec or you're a senior um, VP of X, Y, or Z, whatever it may be. And then you could be just a member of the team. So you may not be the co-founder, you might not be senior, but you're a junior and you want to join the team because it's an exciting startup. The salary won't be as great as an industry, but the flexibility, the, the options that you get, the learning you have in a startup is can't be paralleled. Absolutely. So if you're the kind of crazy person like we all are saying, oh, that's an exciting opportunity. It's kind of those adrenaline junkies, right? <laughs> it tends to track, actually. I think uh, Iran might agree with me on this. Some people I agree, Jason. Yeah. Right, That's right. why I'm recruiting. I'm trying to also balance and fill the gaps. We don't want to just have a team of pure adrenaline junkies because that might also not be suitable. So you have to be a bit self-aware and conscious. Exactly. And it's about that balance and right and making sure you fill those gaps. And then um, I guess probably downstream, you could be a collaborator. Let's say you're an academic and you don't want to leave your academic career and you really want to stay in the university system, but you are curious. Maybe you spin out your technology. Maybe you collaborate with a startup. That's another aspect of how you can work together. So there's multiple levels. You could be a consultant advisor too. A lot of our companies pay, um, say, academics and um, other individuals or commercial individuals, consultancy fees to advise them. Or you could just mentor. Maybe you just have some time. You want to take somebody for a pint or for a coffee and give them some advice. You can do that as well. No strings attached. And it might just be something that you're passionate about. So multiple ways you can get involved. Now, we've talked a bit, and as you've gone through, I've the one thing that's coming across to me quite strongly, Jason, is that sense of, I suppose, mentorship that you do with companies. Um, and that, that really does come to the fore quite a lot. What does mentoring mean to you, and should more of us become mentors? I think we all could be mentors, and we all benefit from being mentored. I have several mentors in my life, as I said, uh, about the connection piece, several mentors who have helped me get to where I am. And this is both from a personal as well as a professional level. And I think that's so important. Those power skills I mentioned earlier, sometimes you need a mentor to say like, okay, well, you know, you maybe have loads of nature papers, but you're really kind of an unpleasant person to work with. We find that often in the world. (laughs) You wouldn't be surprised. And then we've got to mentor people through that and be like, you know what, you are technically clever, but maybe you need to learn some personal skills and learn how to communicate better or learn how to engage with others. There's so many different facets. All of us come from different walks of life and we can learn from one another. I think it's not even, usually people assume when you say mentor, somebody who's older. I have people who I learn from who are much younger than I am, as well as much older, and in my peer group as well. It's seeking out people with different walks of life and give you different perspective and share their point of view with you. So we all owe it to the generations before us and after us and with us to mentor and to, whenever possible, 
provide that guidance and give it back, pay it forward, because none of us would be where we are today if it weren't for the mentors that helped us. Very, very true. Jerome, how has mentoring benefited you? I mean, tremendously as well, obviously. And I think there's this concept of having this one gray-haired mentor in your life and everybody needs one of those. But I don't think that really exists, not not anymore at least. It's better to have a lot of mentors um, that can sort of help you develop whether or not that's various skills or just broaden your view of things. Because, of course, the more information you get, the the bigger you the picture is that, that that you're seeing, for example, as well. And I think for us, mentoring has happened at various stages of our sort of like startup journey. We talked a little bit about sort of that early piece with um, the Nano DTC sort of fellowship and then Impulse as well. But then, of course, when we joined Start Codon, we, we, we got great mentorship from Start Codon. And that's not just Jason and Dan and Michael who have, have great insight as well, but also they helped us sort of like get in touch with um, sort of some key individuals that had really to the point and crisp, unique advice for us. And some of these people have become our chair, for example. So uh, Jason was talking about having non-executives and chairs, et cetera, as well. So um, I think it's really important to identify those key individuals that, A, again, you have a good personal connection with because you want to be working um, with those people on a maybe not a day-to-day basis, but every week or every month or something like that. Um, and I'm really also trying to lock them in a little bit if you can, so that you can depend on them um, a bit more. And I think what we really benefited from as well is, um, I think one of our big gaps initially going into sort of like the Start Codon program was, sort of a bit of an operational gap, if you will, sort of like really creating that foundation of, let's say, the legal side of the company and the HR side of the company. And I think Start Coder was also instrumental uh, with helping us set that up specifically. And again, I think that's something that probably resonates well with or resonates with a lot of other academics out there who are trying to start their company also, because they all have great technical skills. They're all very clever people. Uh, and they're all hungry to learn, but there are some more mundane, boring, admin, legal kind of things that in a company situation, you'll have to get your head around. Absolutely. So it's good to find the people who can teach you this or support you in this. So uh, yeah, it's really important to go out and find those people. And again, I think we've been quite fortunate in, in getting some great brains into our company as well on the uh, non-executive uh, board side of things as well. Yeah, you can't get away from business support stuff. You you need to be able to do it. And, you know, as, we, as we've talked throughout this conversation, bringing in those skills, if you haven't got them, is absolutely key. This is to both of you, but we'll, we'll start with Jason. If you could have a chat with your younger self at the start of your entrepreneurial journey, what advice would you give? Don't worry so much. I used to have a lot of anxiety back in the day about making the right decision or wrong decision or um, am I good enough? I would say, calm down, don't worry, it'll be fine. Right. Jerome? Yeah, I think the advice I would give to myself is um, just don't give up and keep sort of, quote unquote, playing around. Um, I think some feedback that I got years ago is that I was doing too many things. I, I was trying to get a little bit into consulting. I did a bit of academic research. I had an interest in biology. I had an interest in physics. And some people judge that negatively, and I questioned that myself as well. But what in the end, what happened is I got a bit of a flavor of a variety of topics, 
which helped me build that skill set that I needed to get the company off the ground, while also giving me the opportunity to actually figure out what I like and what I don't like and what I want to do in my life and what I don't want to do in my life. And because of that, I ended up now where I am and I'm pleased uh, with where the journey has brought me so far. And of course, personal happiness is something we all strive towards. So that has to be very important and key for everybody, I think. Yeah. Uh, Jason, back to you. What's the most important lesson you've learned throughout your career? I'd say the power of people. It's kind of a theme for this whole session, but it really does come down to people and cultivating those relationships, really showing that you appreciate them, that you respect them, um, that you listen, but you don't have to obey necessarily, depending on who it is. But uh, people is everything. I was going to say something similar, but just for the sake of it, I'll say something else, I think. Um, I think one of the the interesting learnings for me was sometimes we have expectations. And then when the expectations don't come through fruition, we can get sad about those. But you never know what's at the end of the journey. I've had a couple of instances in my life where I wanted to go in a specific direction and I couldn't get there. So I had to fall back to my plan B. But then the plan B actually opened up so many doors and put me on this other trajectory that I didn't know was even out there. So whenever you have a stumble block in front of you or whenever you fall and you think you're not going in the right direction, don't worry too much because you never know where life will guide you. And this negative instance might actually be the best thing that ever happened to you. And you don't know yet. Yeah. Again, just being open to you never know what's around the corner and it might work out. Well, thank you very much for for all of that conversation. There are some great tips and, and advice for listeners to take away. I just want to move on to some very quick, quick fire questions. So straight off the top of your head, Jason, to you first, and then I'll come to you, Jerome. What's your favorite movie and why? Gattaca, because it was <laughs> one of the first times when I really understood that you could be more than your genes. And it empowered me when I was growing up in a world where everybody told me I belonged in a certain place because of what I looked like and where I came from. And it's a beautiful story and also solidified my love for science. Fantastic. Drone. I mean, I'm a big fan of Waking Life, which is a bit of a, a niche movie out there, uh, but it just gives you a flavor of all the different types of people and opinions and live views that are out there. And it is just yeah, enriching to some extent, I would say. Fascinating both. Very interesting. If you could time travel, where would you go and when? I don't think I would try and travel at all, honestly. Um, it's maybe a bit of a boring answer, not one that you were searching for. No? Um, but this, it comes down to when people ask me, oh, if you if you could choose sort of an age um, that you could go back to, I would always say like, well, I've already done that. So I don't want to go back to an age that I've already lived myself. So I would rather keep moving forward. Yeah. You could also dip into the future. But then, yeah, I don't know that takes away the, the excitement of uh, what is around the corner. So I'm going to stick with my boring answer there. You're I'm sorry, going to stick. OK, <laughs> Jason, where would you go if you would and when? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm thinking about this one hard. Well, I would want to go back to the very beginning because I'm curious to know what was that like? Like the, literally the Big Bang, <laughs> the very beginning. I can see Jason dangling in the vacuum of space yes. with some sunglasses <laughs> on, looking at the Big Bang unfolding. And I'll say, oh, that's how it all began. Oh. And okay. now I'll get a Nobel Prize, the one thing that I actually wanted when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me if I'm there for the bang, it's probably, that's that's it. <laughs> I, probably, I probably won't be traveling back. 
it's a big bang for a reason. But I would love, I'm just curious about things like that. And some of those unanswered questions, yeah, and I would yeah. just love to know the answer. Okay, that's great. Um, Jason, uh, are you first on this one? Uh, a night out or box set binge? Now, people would expect, because I own a bar with Tony, <laughs> that I would say night out. <laughs> In reality, if you really know me, I would take a box set any day. Hot chocolate, my duvet, and a nice good film. I'm here for it with popcorn. Jerome, night out or box set binge? I think also probably more close to Jason there with the binge. Although I would prefer to play a set of board games rather than binging a movie, for example. Which board game? Well, during COVID, I got into Dungeons and Dragons, which is not really a board game. Um, I just bought Dune Imperium, so I'm very obsessed with Dune Imperium. Um, I'm a big fan of Terraforming Mars as well. And yeah, some of the bigger ones, I think. I really like those. The journey or the destination, Jerome? What, what would it be for you, the journey or the destination? Well, I have to say the journey, of course. Um, I think the destination is a singularity, and a singularity is not really a time. So I think for everything I do in my life, I want to really enjoy every step of it, even the not so fun stuff uh, that, that comes with it. I think it's really good and healthy try, to try and have that perspective and just even laugh about the things that are not going well uh, and try to make it fun in any way you can. So yeah, definitely the journey. That's great. Jason? Yeah, it's uh, definitely the journey for me as well. There's a great song by Miley Cyrus called The Climb. And some of the lyrics about that is, you know, it's not about where you're going to get there. It's about the climb. I love the journey and loving every moment of it. Brilliant. Well, I'm a, I'm a rock climber. That's one of my main hobbies, which the investors are potentially not very happy with. But that's another point. And of course, with rock climbing, it's not about getting to that peak of the mountain. It's about, yeah, enjoying sort of like climbing the sequence of moves all the way up there. So, yeah, that's a good testament to life, I think. What music discovery or rediscovery have you made? Jason? Um, I've rediscovered the music from when I was younger, like the old soca and reggae hits that my dad and mom used to play. There's a nostalgic bit, especially because I can be with family. There's just something about hearing those tunes, like, you know, Sunday morning and you're just in the sun. And that really helped me get through. So it's music I don't listen to or didn't listen to on a regular basis, except for when I was growing up. And now it brings back all these warm memories. Things I also want to share with our kids now. Great. That's a really great one. Jerome? Well, I, I listen to a lot of genres of music myself, but I also do love myself some more niche types of music. And I think an artist that I discovered in the last 18 months is John Hopkins, who is a, um, an English chap as well. And he makes very bizarre electronic music, which is at some point you don't know if it's music or if it's uh, if it's just some some weird, weird sounds going on in the background. So I do really like exploring that. Well, Drone and Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you both today. Thank you so, so much for being a part of this Joining the Dots podcast and sharing your knowledge and experiences of taking the research from idea to proof of concept, success with seed funding rounds and beyond and the skills, the knowledge that you need to build your team keeping personal connections alive and thriving throughout because you never know what's around the corner and just really being open and explorative and happy to deal with people and I, I know our listeners are going to get an awful lot from it so thank you both so much.
To find out more about Connect Health Tech and join our conversations online, go to our website at connect.cam.ac.uk forward slash health tech. Jason Mellad is a scientist, entrepreneur, passionate about translating innovative technologies into better patient outcomes. Start Codon leverages the unique resources of the Cambridge cluster to identify, seed fund and drive the success of truly disruptive healthcare startups. Previously, Jason was CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics and Business Development Manager for Horizon Discovery's Diagnostics Division. He also served as an associate at Cambridge Enterprise, the Technology Transfer Office of the University of Cambridge. Jeroen Verheer leads the development of Sumerian's applications. He is driven to address drug discovery bottlenecks with the Semicite platform through commercial scaling and partnering. His previous research activities include the development of novel renal cell carcinoma screening tools and RNA and cell therapeutics for spinal cord injury.